Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Rish Desai. You know, one of our goals with Raise the Line is to help people understand the big picture of what's happening in the U.S. healthcare system. And today's guest is in a perfect position to do that. Dr. Rahul Rajkumar brings the perspective of physician and experience in high-level positions in government and the health insurance industry to his current role as CEO of Optum Care Solutions. He is also a key figure in establishing value-based medicine and accountable care in the U.S. So we'll be asking him about the state of healthcare reform as it stands today. Dr. Rajkumar earned both his medical degree and legal degree at Yale, and he was an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. And please call me Rahul, by the way. Uh, it's, it's great to be here. I appreciate it. Sounds good, Rahul. You, you have an incredible background, and I feel like you know the the question I ask you know could easily take us in different directions. So let me just maybe back up and start with a, an earlier part of your life, and, and what got you even thinking about medicine, and particularly internal medicine, way back when? Yeah, so thank you, Rishi. I, I grew up in a medical household. You know, my parents are both immigrants from India. They're both primary care providers. And so grew up around medicine my whole life. Very early in my career, I began to think, wonder, learn about the ways in which other things affect health outcomes. So things like access to healthcare, poverty, lack of food, lack of transportation, lack of housing. And in the United States, our financing system. So my life's work is to make healthcare better to make it safer, to improve its quality, make it more efficient for populations, for the country. And the main lever that we have right now, and the thing I've spent the last decade of my career working on, is trying to re-engineer the underlying financing systems of healthcare. So to change the way that we pay for healthcare to make it better. Because the the way that we pay for healthcare, it signals what we value. And you know, we are about a third of the way through a national journey or transformation that is reimagining how we can pay for healthcare to, to make our healthcare delivery system better. When you were working as a clinician, when you were seeing patients, what did you notice that made you even recognize that how we pay for healthcare was a problem? What are some examples of what you saw? Thank you for asking that. I don't want to make too much of my being a clinician because there are so many doctors, including my own parents, who see patients every day and are um, are truly working on the front lines. And I'm, by comparison, I'm kind of a hobbyist or a, you know, I'm not, I feel a little sheepish holding myself out as someone who's in, in the practice of medicine every day. My, my clinical practice is very limited right now. But I think anyone who's around clinical medicine sees some of this. I have trouble even picking out one or like the one or two most important cases. I'm I'm a hospitalist. You know, one of the main things that you see in hospital-based medicine, you know, we care about what happens within the four walls of the hospital, but often, especially for Medicare beneficiaries, there is this whole post-acute period, right? That is like the black hole of American medicine, where patients go to skilled nursing facilities, inpatient rehab, sometimes to home. Often the decision of what that next site of care is, is is made arbitrarily. It's based on the next available bed. It's not made based on science. And how long does the patient stay there? Who follows them? You know, what is, what is their access to care during that period? Highly variable. It's actually the site of the highest variation in quality and cost of care in, in the U.S. healthcare system. 
Yeah, there's another case that I saw. It was a few months ago, a patient, a younger patient, a Medicaid beneficiary with multiple sclerosis, who had a, I guess it was secondary progressive multiple sclerosis, and then had a decline in her functional status. And she had been living at home independently. She didn't have family in the area and a limited social network. And the the end result of this hospitalization was I, I saw her in the course of a hospitalization was that she was really tentative to go home, you know, physically, but also mentally, you know, and, and it was not clear. She was a borderline case. And any physician has probably seen many such cases of a patient who wants to go home, could fly at home, if we could wrap them a blanket, you know, of love and support and services. But organizing all of those things to help someone thrive at home is very, very hard. And the different players that need to be involved, their incentives are not necessarily aligned. Of course, the the main interest of the hospital is in reducing its length of stay, because that's how we pay hospitals. We, we pay them DRGs. Is there a, an accountable primary care provider or a quarterback outside of the hospital that beyond their professional ethic actually cares about what happens to this patient? That's kind of the nut of the issue. And can, can we rally all the different sources of support that we have in our society to help this person thrive at home? Like, and you, and you see it in a case like that. It's really, really hard, you know, and, and every single case like this is a puzzle with a, with a human being at the center of it. You know, you mentioned beyond the professional ethic, and I think sometimes I even question that because I think a lot of folks feel burnt out or stressed out or frustrated because of the, the pressures of being that, that caregiver that cares. And a lot of times because of EHRs and all these other kind of influences on that patient-doctor relationship, it becomes hard to maintain a professional ethic around caring about the patient's good when you're not incentivized to do so on a daily basis. And, and obviously that has led to a lot of folks feeling stressed, leaving the profession entirely, et cetera. What is your sense on that? Are you seeing any strong reasons for optimism on that front? Well, it's very hard to be optimistic right now, but I'll share some some sources of optimism. But I, I do want to acknowledge that we have just, we are living through, maybe we've lived through the worst of it, but an extraordinarily difficult period in the history of American medicine. We have asked so much of our healthcare workforce, not just provide, not just doctors, but nurses, every level of person that works in a hospital, of frontline workers, and you see it in the statistics and in the stories of the level of burnout and even depression, you know, among among healthcare workers. I think that in in some practice settings there are reasons for optimism. So in my current world at Optum, you know, we work with high-performing practices that practice excellence in in population health and you know, often focused on Medicare beneficiaries. But you know, we're able to create a practice environment that gives providers enough time to spend with their patients, to advance professionally, to play a leadership role in their practice. We're certainly not the only one. I see others out there that are re-engineering primary care and, and, and using new systems of financing to do that. So those, those things give me some reason for optimism. You know, I'm curious, you've been involved in healthcare reform efforts at the national level at critical junctures in American history. What led you to do that? What made you think you could? A lot of folks see these problems and think, gosh, these are frustrating and 
let me just keep plugging away in, in my own clinic or maybe complain at parties. Well, you chose not to do that. You chose to get involved and do the messy work of politics insofar as policy. When I say politics, I mean policymaking. How did you get to the place in your own mind that you could do that or that was within your purview? Yeah, well, first is just having an interest. You know, I have an interest in health policy and, and in healthcare systems and healthcare finance. Some of it is luck, being in the right place at the right time and having sponsors, mentors that have helped me along the way. There are many to name, but I think a lot of it is also just willingness to take a plunge You know, at the right moment in my career. One of the greatest sponsors I've had is, is Patrick Conway, who's also a physician. He's the CEO of, of Care Solutions Optum, and I, he's my boss. I've worked with him in three different jobs, but I often tease him that when I went to work for him at CMS, he had like a list of 10 people that he tried to hire before he got to me. And none of them were willing to take a 90% pay cut to come work for him in the government. And so he got to me, I was like 35 years old at the time. I was like, put me in coach. If you catch someone at the right moment of their life and career, I think serving in government is a tremendous opportunity. It is one of the most impactful and joyful jobs I've ever had in my life. So Patrick, just for what it's worth, was in residency before me by a couple of years. And so he was a senior resident when I was coming in as an intern. And you quickly realize like who's amazing. Uh, and Patrick has stuck with me immediately and in, in, in follow on from there. And I've always kind of admired his career. So I'm, I'm happy you mentioned his name. He's he's a star. Oh, he is, yeah. So now you, you were... Deputy Director of the CMMS Innovation in the early years of the Affordable Care Act, and you help push value-based approach in, in, in which kind of there's more emphasis on quality than there was previously. What, what's your assessment now that, that things have kind of played out, some time has passed in terms of where we are now? And then as part of that answer, I'd love you to kind of reflect on COVID as well and whether that's accelerated or derailed that reform. Yeah. You know, 10 years in to this period of, of learning and experimentation, I think we have a few conclusions we can draw. The accountable care organization as a constructed works compared to non-ACO providers. ACOs can reduce total cost of care by a modest amount. So I don't think you should expect from an ACO to see a 30% reduction in, in healthcare expenditures. But compared to what would have happened without providers being accountable for the total cost of care, we see that ACOs can produce modest savings. And, you know, it's a real win and something that has now been studied extensively. I think there's a demonstrable impact there. I think we are still at an earlier stage of experimentation with bundled payments, where I would love to see CMS go in the longer term is getting to 90-day DRGs. So you think of a hospitalization as what happens within the four walls of a hospital. But what the patient really cares about, the most patient-centered view of things is home-to-home -home time. So the financial incentive for an episode you know, that's anchored with a hospitalization should really be 90 days, home to home. That includes the post-acute period. It's kind of an explosive concept. Somebody will probably listen to this podcast and tweet about it, but I, I, I really think that like the, the end game here is that we need to get to 90-day DRGs. Um, we're, we're a long way away from that. There are a few things that we've learned, like back to ACOs. I think financial risk matters. So the provider's should have some skin in the game. The type of ACO matters. So we see greater success among independent primary care providers that are in ACO arrangements versus hospital-based or system-based. So if you look at a company like Allidade as one example, 
has, has built a business model around this. Independent primary care led ACOs. I think we want to make quality measurement as simple as possible. Um, and so that's, that's an area where there's still a lot of work to be done. And then two other things I'll name greater attention to health equity and the, the health equity impacts of new payment models. And I see CMS moving in this direction. And then lastly, we need to make the alternative to being in a value-based arrangement or an ACO as unappealing as possible. And that is something that will likely require more action from Congress in the long term. About 30% of Medicare fee-for-service beneficiaries, a little more than maybe 35% now, are attributed to an ACO provider. To get the other 65% is going to require a greater push from the federal government. And so that, that's what I think is on the horizon. And, and so I need to make the alternative as unappealing as possible. You brought up a few really interesting ideas and you called out the explosiveness of one of them, which is the one that stands out for me, you know, this idea of home to home time. And I philosophically, like, what is the reason that someone wouldn't jump onto that idea? Why isn't, just to play devil's advocate, why is that not something that we're all kind of running to? You said it will take some time to kind of get that idea through. Why? What, what kind of hurdles do you see? Well, I think it would require a dramatic restructuring of the payment systems. So question one is who is accountable or who holds the risk for that 90-day episode? Is it a hospital? Is it a post-acute facility? Is it a physician? Is it some combination or coalition of those? So we have to figure that part out. If you created 90-day DRGs that are anchored by hospital stays, it could create a dramatic restructuring of the industry. And then there's also just the question of how you get there. So uh, this can happen by act of Congress, um, if Congress were to restructure the CMS payment systems. But the other is by testing a CMMI model. That would almost certainly have to be a mandatory model. And so it requires rulemaking and you know, a pretty aggressive path from CMMI to do that. And so you would have to design the model, test it, evaluate it, and then use the authority of CMMI to expand it. And that's, that's about a four or five year path. Are there countries that do approach it that way? Are there models that you're drawing from that you've seen, you know, in terms of how they might break down the percentage of what the hospital gets versus what the skilled nursing facility gets, et cetera, that you think that we could learn from? Yeah, not really. I mean, one thing off the bat is I, I suspect that we are an outlier in our use of post-acute care among industrialized countries in general, but I really have to check that fact. In terms of provider payment innovation, I really believe the U.S. to be pretty advanced in its experimentation. One of the things that may make you laugh, like when I was in government at CMMI, we used to get inbound interest from all sorts of foreign governments like so from the government of the uk france israel like, you know i even went to the embassy of new zealand once to give a presentation in washington and at first i thought like what do they you know we think of the u.s healthcare system as kind of dysfunctional right like, and, and not as advanced uh, from a yeah. financing standpoint as, as these other systems that provide universal access and i was like what this is like the blind leading the blind like why do you want to hear from me yeah um <laughs> I think those countries are really advanced in the way in which they finance health insurance. You know, so they have a social insurance concept of healthcare and, and they have universal coverage often through single payer or nationalized systems. But the second order of like, how do you pay the providers? How do you incent the providers to deliver efficient care, high quality care is something where we are, we are not very far behind. And if anything, we're farther along and more advanced. 
when you would go to these presentations, what were some of the standout ideas on how we incent physicians that other countries were sort of really excited about? So just speaking in general concepts, the idea of a medical home, you know, where you're you're paying a, a primary care provider to deliver enhanced services, the idea of the primary care provider as the quarterback, you know, as controlling mm-hmm. total cost of care, managing total cost of care, you know, the, the primary care provider is the one whose incentives are really aligned with the payer, whether that's government or commercial. And for them, if they're incented in the right way, specialist, hospital, post-acute care, these are all cost centers, you know, but the primary care provider has a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah. So that, that concept I think is very powerful, you know, and then certainly the idea of payment bundling, you know, for different episodes, but that's a vast concept. Those are the three main ideas. All CMMI models are really variants of those. Those are the three that I've seen others latch on to. Do you mind speaking just a little bit more about Optum now? What role does Optum play if folks aren't familiar with it and, and what Care Solutions is all about? Yeah, so Optum is uh, part of United Health Group. Just structurally, Optum has a pharmacy benefit manager. It has an analytics company, and then there's Optum Health. And so I work in a part of Optum Health. I'm the chief operating officer for Optum Care Solutions, and we operate a family of businesses that broadly are trying to make healthcare better. So one of them is a Optum Behavioral Health, you know, which manages behavioral healthcare for various clients. Many of our businesses are focused on improving care for Medicare Advantage beneficiaries. So uh, Navi Health manages post-acute care, relates to what I had said earlier you know, where there's tremendous variation in, in the quality and, and efficiency of post-acute care. Landmark is another example, Optimate Home, that provide in-home care to um, high-need, frail, elderly. But broadly, the unifying theme of this family of businesses are that they're trying to improve healthcare for a segment of the, of the population. You know, it's very confusing for folks that are learning about the healthcare industry for the first time to kind of jump in and, and all the buzzwords like bundled care and ACOs and all, all this kind of stuff. If you could pick one topic that, that you feel like is just so poorly understood or people think they understand it, but they don't, and keeping in mind we're a teaching companies, so we love to fill these knowledge gaps, what is one thing that you teach or educate our, our audience on? Keeping in mind our primary audience is, is students that are early on in their healthcare careers. Let me give you two. If, if you're teaching companies, you know, and, and, and teaching people that are future entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs in healthcare, you know, or people that want to um, do something to make healthcare better, I would really focus on the payment systems and make, make a deep study of how we pay for healthcare in the different segments of, of United States healthcare. And that is the area where I, when I see, I meet with a lot of early stage companies, I, I the biggest gap in understanding I see is in how we pay for healthcare, because that leads to like, how do I build a successful concept or business? I think the second is just a misunderstanding of what health insurance is. No individual can really shop for healthcare alone. Most patients have immense loyalty to their providers, to their doctors, to their, especially to their primary care provider. And that's good. I mean, that trust is important. But when you really think about it, no patient wants to be out there shopping for healthcare services alone. It is critically important that we shop for healthcare, we purchase healthcare as a part of a coalition. And that's the function of health insurance, whether it's a government payer or a commercial payer. 
And so when you walk into a, um, an emergency room and you pull out a United Healthcare card or a Blue Cross card or a Aetna card, whatever you have, it means that you're not alone. There's millions of people standing shoulder to shoulder with you. And, you know, that's important. It's important for people to see themselves as a part of a coalition when they're accessing the healthcare system. And that function of being a part of a buying coalition is a really important one. And I would love to see more and more Americans develop that understanding and then begin to influence, like, how do they want their coalition to act? And how can they act as a part of that, that buying community? That makes a lot of sense. And I think that's at the heart of a lot of other misunderstandings and, and frankly, a lot of feelings that people then generate about their insurance company, their provider, so on and so forth. You know, maybe as a close, we have a lot of students that look at your career. You mentioned that you are the son of parents that were in the industry, in the space, frontline healthcare providers. You do a little bit of that, but then you do a lot of other things as well and have moved among different interesting parts of the healthcare space. If someone wants to emulate your career, how do they go about doing that? It can, it can seem quite daunting seeing where you are today versus where they may be at the moment. Yeah, I think... One, I would never counsel someone to emulate my career. I, I think you can have a better career. I mean, there, there's so much opportunity in the world. And I, I guess one piece of advice would be to become an expert in something, like particularly if you're in medicine, but try, like, or especially in the early years of your career, develop your portfolio of knowledge and have at least one area of deep knowledge and expertise and be identified with a, a particular body of knowledge. Seek mentors, sponsors that will help you along the path. And then I think it's totally okay to like look at other other trajectories, not to emulate them, but just to understand like how did that person get from point A to point B? I still find that to be very useful. And I, especially at the earlier years of my career, I think it's, it's very useful to do that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that idea of going deep and, and making yourself identified by that deep body of knowledge and perfecting your craft uh, certainly resonates with me as well. Listen, that was fantastic. I, I gained a lot from our conversation. I'm sure a lot of our audience did as well. So thank you. Thank you for having me here today. I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>